0: Please stand for the reading of God's word from 1 John chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 and also Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. 1 John Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And from Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning again. I feel like I'm always short after following Laura or Evan or anyone else. I feel like we're a church of tall people. Um, By we, I mean y'all. But it's good to be with you, no matter your height, age, or stage. uh, Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. Uh, We are continuing in a short series I've been calling Walking in Darkness, uh, hoping to address the difficult, uh, painful moment we find ourselves in as a church, a moment of uncertainty and difficulty and challenge. Uh, We've been covering themes of how we experience uncertainty. Uh, What do we do with our pain? Do we run from that? Where do we take it? How do we engage with it in a a healthy and constructive way? And how do we walk in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of not knowing what's coming next and and not having control? Uh, How do we walk in, in faith? in wisdom, in love with one another in times like these. And so last week, uh, we looked through 2 Corinthians chapter 12 at how God connects with us in our pain, how he actually meets us in that place. So that's the place that we could most expect, not least expect, that God would show up for you. And that he always, always, even when it's difficult, has a heart and a posture towards us that is one of Giving today, we're going to focus mainly on first John chapter 2, though we had both passages read, and we'll get into why. But we're going to use that second passage, Acts chapter 9, to help us understand what John is calling us to here in this first book of John and how we live that out. Uh, overall, first John is calling us unequivocally to love one another in light of the fact that God, who is love, Jesus Christ has come among us in the flesh and changed life from top to bottom. That's what John calls us to do, to live with one another in light of the resurrection, in light of Jesus' coming in the way that he lived among us and now lives in us, which is love. Uh, There are going to be a lot of questions you might have today after we talk about some of these things about how we really love one another and care for one another well in the dark. How do we do that in concrete, tangible ways that make a difference for our lives? I'm not going to be able to address all the details that may come up in your questions. I'm at best going to be able to give us general principles from these things. I can't address each and every possible situation. So if you don't hear me addressing that, ask me a question after. We can try and talk about that. But what I can get into is some generalities here. And these principles themselves are helpful for us. And learning how to care for one another, even while we're walking in uncertainty, darkness, difficulty, and pain. And so I want to explore what the text shows us about how we, how we care for each other in times like these by looking at three things. First, the nature of this principle uh, in verses 7 and 8 and 10. How we go wrong from that principle in verses 9 through 11. And then how we actually get any of this right through Acts chapter 9 So the nature of the principle of love, how we go wrong, and how we get it right. Before we do that, I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Let's ask the Lord to be here. Father, we've already been speaking to you this morning. We've prayed many times. We've sung. We've responded. We've heard your word. We're not somehow asking you to show up in a way that we haven't already asked you to be here this morning but we come to a point in our service where we do pause around your word where we let it sink deep in our hearts where we endeavor to the best of our abilities to let our guards down to hear from you to to be bound up where we need to be bound up to be nudged where we need to be moved where we need to be consoled and encouraged and given strength and faithfulness and hope and so god would you do as we come to sit and have a moment of presence with you in stillness, would you fill up that space? Would you fill up our hearts? Would you burn in our hearts where they are cold? Would you calm them where they are anxious? Would you give us a deep breath of your life that we might breathe out and know that you are still God, we are still your people, and you are still coming back for us? Would you give us the courage and the power of your Holy Spirit to wait until we see you face to face? So come and fill up our hearts now. Fill up your word. May it not go away empty. May we not go away empty, but rather full through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to have those open. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or use your Bible apps if you like, or you can always listen. But we're going to start and spend a good deal of our time in 1 John chapter 2, particularly in this first point, the nature of the principle, verses 7 through 8 and 10. Well, the first thing that I want to point out about the nature of this principle of how we, how we care for each other that John is trying to get us to see is that it is a command to love. So those two things. It's a command and it's a command to love. It might feel a little hidden because John starts talking, if you look in the passage, about a new commandment an old commandment, a new commandment that I'm writing to you, and you're sort of thinking, where is the commandment? And it shows up most pointedly in verse 10, where he says, to love your brother. That is the commandment. We could say, love your sister just as easily. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the commandment that John is writing about that's both new and old. In light of Christ coming into the world, we are called to love each other, not to hate each other. We're going to talk first about the fact that this is focused on love before we get to the fact that it's focused on command, but this is what John is talking about. He says it's both ancient and new, this call that we have to love. It's ancient in that from the earliest times, God has called his people to love their neighbor as themselves. Leviticus 19 codifies that, but that's been in principle what God has always been calling people to do, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's an ancient commandment that John is talking about here. He's saying this is nothing new. You've heard this before. This should not be a surprise. And at the same time, he says it's new. It it has new relevance, new meaning, new purpose for us. Because now for all those who have put their faith in Jesus, he actually lives in you by the Holy Spirit, enabling you to love, as it were, for the first time, like he loved. That there is something that's happened because Jesus has come that changes our understanding and our ability to fulfill this ancient commandment. That there is something new at work in you. That you have a new example of what this law looks like in Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection. We see a more concrete picture of what God's love looks like lived out before our eyes. We both see it and are changed by it in the Christian life. We have been made new in such a way that this command is almost new to our eyes. It's like we're seeing it for the first time. The game with Jesus has been changed. So John's talking to us about something that we've always been called to do, but now because of what Jesus has done, we have a completely new power to do that we didn't have before he actually put to death our sin, before he reconciled us back to himself, before he made us able to be back in relationship with us, to live with us once again like he did in the garden, to walk with us in unhindered love and community. We have a new power to do something that we've always been called to do but haven't been able to do fully. It's sort of like if you've seen the movie Ant-Man. Uh, my children have been criticizing me this week. For some reason, they think Disney Plus belongs to them and them alone. And so anytime I watch something and it shows up in their continue-watching queue, I get chastised for death. Why, how could you interrupt our queue? Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, but anyway, I had actually never watched... Ant-Man, so I started watching some of it, and I realized that there's a, an opening scene in the movie where uh, Dr. Darren Cross, then sort of the, the CEO of the PIM Company, makes a pitch to a bunch of seemingly military contractors for a technology that can make a super soldier. It can give the soldier the ability to do something that a soldier has always been called to do, but in a dramatically new improved way. The soldier's always been called to fight, but now with this technology, they can actually do that in a dramatically new and different way. And likewise, Jesus Christ living in you gives you a power to do what you have always been called to do, but now are able to do in a new and different, a dramatically more strong and life-giving way. You now have the power to fulfill this command, John is saying, in a new way. This is something you've always been called to do, but now, because of Jesus, you can really do this. This is before you. It is in you. This is true of you. Now it is new for you. You have been given the power to love if you are in Christ. Love is what this is about. It's the new thing that you are given to do. And at the same time, it's not just a new shiny thing that you can enjoy. It's also, he says, a command. Verse 7 and 8, John says, I'm writing to you an ancient commandment. I'm writing to you a new commandment. I'm writing to you a commandment. Commandments are to be done at all times. They are to be done kept. They're not suggestions. They're not requests. They're not a if you have time, would you mind? Commands are thou shalt fill in the blank. It's not an if situation. It's something that we must do no matter the circumstances. That's what a command is, a rule that you follow even when you don't want to. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a command. It would just be things I like to do, and it would be a list of things you like to do, right? That's not what a command is. A command is, do this even when you don't want to. John's saying we are called to love one another in Christ even when we don't want to. Kids, called to love our parents. Big kids, called to love our parents even when we don't want to. Parents, mm, called to love our children even when we don't feel like it. Even when you feel like you've just been slapped in the face, maybe physically, and you don't want to love. Siblings, called to love your brother or sister even when you don't want to. Friends, co workers, fellow riders of the T and public transportation fellow drivers on 93. We are called to love even when we don't want to. What does that possibly look like? I want to say first what it doesn't look like, just to be clear about what we're talking about here. Love at all times does not look like submitting to, ignoring, or avoiding sin doesn't mean that. I don't mean fleeing from sin. I mean avoiding talking about someone else's sin, some way that they have hurt you, some way that they've wronged others. God does not call us to look the other way when it comes to sin. That is not love. At times, we can confuse getting along for love, that I don't really want to, I don't want to have conflict with this person. I just want to keep the peace. I want things to be okay. That's actually not love at its truest definition. It's not. Love at times actually requires conflict. Actually at times requires not getting along. If you really love someone, it is going to require at some point in time that you not get along with them because love, as Thomas Aquinas summarized well, is the commitment to will the good of another. That's one way we can summarize love. Scripture talks about loves in a bunch of different ways. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 John 4, all sorts of ways. But maybe a more compact summary we could say it is the commitment to will the good of another. And the good of another is sometimes going to include coming into conflict with them, to see them return to a life with God and flourishing in God. Willing the good of another is going to mean, I am not willing to just let you go off into what will break you down, into what will break our relationship down. That may require entering into conflict with them to see them return to the light. After all, God was not willing to just let us go off into the distance. Even from the very beginning, even in Genesis, when we first said, I don't love you by not trusting Him with our whole hearts, God didn't just say, All right, go, fine, whatever. God immediately makes promises, immediately shows his commitment to will the good, even of those who are not loving him in that moment. God entered into conflict with us from the very beginning to have us back. God wouldn't just let us drift away. And we see that so dynamically in the person of Jesus who out of love stepped into the mess that is humanity, didn't stay far off, let himself see it, smell it, hear it, experience it day in and day out for 30 years, stepping in to the brokenness out of love, told us, even went into conflict with people. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, is not like, oh, well, I just want to keep the peace. Let's all be friends, okay? Jesus is getting into arguments with people a lot of the time in a gracious way that only God can, but he is not just bailing out of conflict. Even God himself gets into conflicts out of love. Most deeply, Jesus shows us his commitment to love us at the cross where he suffers in our place, steps into our conflict with him to be sacrificed on our behalf that we might be reconciled back to him, that the repair might happen, that we might not ultimately be let go. He let the conflict come into his own soul, break his body, his spirit, and his mind. That's how willing God is to have you be in a position of flourishing with him. How much he desires, how much he wills your good. That he would let The conflict you have with him, break him. That's how far he was willing to go, to will our good, to bring us back to life. He was willing to step into the conflict, to let the conflict crush him. Jesus chose to be for our flourishing, even when it cost him his life. So when we see Jesus, we hear this commandment from John. When we see Jesus, we realize that sometimes love means stepping into conflict and doing hard things. So in this time of difficulty and pain in our congregation, and other times of difficulty and pain in your life, there are going to be moments where love requires us to do hard things, to have really hard conversations, that we don't want to have, that are not fun conversations. Because if you are following this command to love, you're eventually going to be faced with the fact that love is really hard. But sometimes, even though we have the power to love in a new way through Jesus, even though God is animating us from the inside out with a will to good for others, we still, and this is why John is writing this, we still don't want to. John is not writing this to people who don't believe yet. If you believe in here this morning, John is writing this to you, to people who are animated by the power and love of Jesus Christ. He's reminding you that we still, even with that power, even with the indwelling of God in us, sometimes we still don't want to love us. The people that call Christ their Savior. We, who know him, don't want to love. Sometimes we still go wrong when it comes to love. Becoming a Christian does not mean automatically you know how to love and you always get it right. It also doesn't mean just because you're not doing these things perfectly well that you're not a believer. John is writing to believers who still don't do these things and yet who still belong to Jesus. So don't hear me say this morning that we go wrong and think I must not be a Christian yet. That's not the conviction of Scripture. It's pointing you, though, in your belonging to Christ, in your calling him your Lord, to a new and better way for flourishing for you and for others. But to sit down on this for a minute, how do we go wrong? If this is what this, this principle is about, to will the good of another through the power of God in you, how do we still go wrong in actually not loving our brother or sister in Christ? Now We see these things come out in our second point here, through verses 9 and 11. John says it basically boils down to walking in darkness. A lot of what John talks about in this book is a contrast between light and dark. And we can all think about how different light and dark are. Light shows you the way. Light can feel warm. It can be a beautiful thing for you. Darkness, sometimes if you want to sleep, is amazing. But other times, it can make you afraid. And it can be disorienting. It's not helpful in leading you to where you want to go. John says we walk in darkness when we hate our brother or sister in Christ. That's the picture he wants to give you, that that it may feel like you are seeing clearly when you hate someone and that you see in them what they don't see in themselves. But John is saying actually in that moment you're the one that does not see. counterintuitively, when you are hating your brother and sister in Christ, you are the one who is walking in darkness. And we can think of hate maybe just as only intense opposition, fierce anger, some of the things that we saw in 2020, in the things that have happened in our country in the past few years, and the things that have been terrible in our country for years and years, for centuries. But hate can also be far more subtle. Hate, kind of like an organic being, like a plant, it can grow large or it can stay small, depending on what you feed it, depending on the circumstances. But no matter how big or small it is, it is always that thing. The acorn is only going to become the oak tree. It is not going to become a tomato plant. It is only going to grow up into that thing. But even in small form, it's still just a miniature version of that thing. So hate, even in seed form, is still hate. Even if it only looks like smaller things, like insults, making someone feel bad about themselves, avoiding someone, not having relationship with them, giving them the cold shoulder, rejecting someone, distancing yourself, excluding Others. All these things are just a more subtle version of hate, of not actually loving. I think one subtle form that hate could take in our community at this time, while we're dealing with what someone is accused to have done and all the uncertainty around that, is that we can focus on who or what is. Right, and what we believe to be true and base our treatment of others here on whether or not they agree with us. That is a way that we have the opportunity to go wrong in this time rather than acting in love amidst potential differences. We might take sides. We might treat those who agree with us pretty well. Be very appreciative of them. And those who don't, we're more cold to them. We don't show them as much care or affection. That's something that our culture teaches us to do and does all the time. Our culture has no space for disagreeing, even vastly, and loving. That is not something our culture does right now. We require uniformity, sameness, Full or near full agreement, or we can't have, don't want to have connection, relationship. We don't will the good of others if they don't agree on what we say. Listen, this is just in the water. Right? This is like pollution in the water. If you are a fish, you can't escape the pollution. It's just there. You have to recover from it. In the same way, this is just there. This is where we are right now. I'm touched by this. Y'all are touched by this. There is not one of us who isn't sitting in kind of this, this toxic water of not loving unless we agree. We say, even if only subconsciously, you either agree with me, you affirm my position, my understanding, or you don't care about me, and I can't show you love. And I think that reveals something that's actually not helpful for us, but harmful for us, for a way that we really are walking in the dark, because the reality is when we do that, we have come to love agreement more than we love people. We've come to love agreement more than we love people as a culture. We value ideas and opinions over people made in the image of God who might hold those ideas, good or bad, as they may be. We have learned to stress agreement over relationship, to offer love to agreement and distance, exclusion, rejection, hate to disagreement. That's one of the ways that we can walk in darkness and not realize where we're going, as verse 11 says, that that we're really actually walking in hate, in a form of hate, even if subtle, without knowing it, because we think we're in verse 9, which verse 9 says you may think you are walking in the light, but if you hate your brother, you are walking in darkness. We might say we're just defending what we believe and we have deep conviction about being true. We're just doing what's right, pursuing what's right, but the darkness of subtle hate has clouded our sight so that we can't see, that we have started putting conditions around our willingness to be for the good and flourishing of others. That we've started to only will someone else's good so long as they agree with me. But that is not biblical love. It's the love of something you get from a person, not love of a person. It's not willing their good, ultimately. It's really willing your good, my good. If what I want most from you is agreement, not you, what I don't want is you. I want something from you that benefits me. I'm not actually for your good. And there are a lot of ways, right? Let's be honest, that we can hurt each other, that we can say stupid, hurtful things to one another that do not help, and I am not saying we can pretend like things don't hurt and we aren't unkind to each other, but I'm saying when we learn to treat each other well, only if we agree we are actually walking in darkness and settling for less. We've learned to love something we get from people more than people. It's using other people or rejecting them when they can't be used. That is not love. Love is a commitment to will the good of another no matter what. And that does not mean, I want to be clear about this, that if someone has made us feel unsafe, that they have harmed us in some way, that we just rush back into relationship like nothing has happened. Or that we could ever be in relationship with someone who has truly broken our trust in a foundational way. That may not be possible this side of heaven. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean that there won't also be times where we are limited in the ways that we can show love to others because of how they are treating us or themselves. We are not God. We can't control the hearts of others. We can only do what we can do. But the question is, what will we do with us? Because we do have opportunity. We still can, with healing, with grace, with the love of Christ working in us, actually love others even when we don't agree with them. Even from a distance, if all we can do is be at a distance, we can still will the good of another. It is a time, certainly culturally, but also here, with so much uncertainty, where tensions are high, where it would be easy for us to sink into an unwitting, subtle form of hate, where we only love each other if we can agree, where we would walk in that darkness thinking that we are walking in the light of having everything right, of valuing, having the exact right opinion over people. This is what John, one of the things that John would call us to be aware of, to not walk in the darkness thinking that we are walking in the light. But more than simply being aware, John doesn't want us to just know that this is our possibility, but he is pointing us in his book to the light of how we actually get these things right. But I want to detour us for a little bit to Acts, if you want to flip over there back to Acts chapter 9, to see something that actually helps us do what John calls us to do, through story, through interaction. So if you go back to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 there, we see this interaction for the first time of the Apostle Paul when he is still called Saul, when he is still someone who is deeply opposed to everything about the church, understands it to be something wrong, something that must be put down. He is seeking letters that he might seek anyone who is found to be following the way. That's what Christianity was called at that time to bring them back to Jerusalem and to take care of them. And so Saul at this time is on his way to do exactly that, to call people out, to bring them down, to punish them. He has even approved the killing of some. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, he is seen in Acts chapter 9 approving, I'm sorry, 8 and 7, approving the death of Stephen. He has gone so far as to say, if you don't agree with me, you can't live, right? He is moved beyond the I love you whether we agree into either you agree with me or you have major consequences. He believed he was doing what was right, yet in the middle of this darkness, he is completely awestruck by Jesus revealing himself in power and light and glory to his eyes, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This encounter and this brief message from Jesus changes everything for Paul's hate. It also reveals a key to how we get love right too. And that comes through the me of Jesus' words in that sentence. Paul, Paul, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says through this that Saul, through, through persecuting those who belong to me, through killing my people, You are actually persecuting me. It's a bit strange if you think about it. You might expect him to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church, my people, my friends? But he says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting me? It's a strange thing to say. There's something mysterious about what's going on here. You might say, as I sometimes do to my children, why are you hurting him? right? Or, why are you hurting my friend? But he says, why are you persecuting me? As though killing them is killing him. It's this me that would change everything for Saul, who becomes Paul. It shows up over and over again in his theology, the recognition of what this means, but it reveals a hidden relationship between Jesus Christ and all those who belong to him that leads us back to love for one another. And that hidden relationship is that when we believe, when we genuinely become one with Jesus by faith, we become bound to him, united to Jesus. Paul talks about our union with Jesus Christ over and over again in his letters. And Jesus himself talks about this in many places in the gospel, that to be one with him is to treat other people in a way that you would treat him because you are now so united to him that to treat others some way is to actually treat him. I'll give you an example about this. If you were to say, Travis, I really don't like you, but I love Esther. Esther is not going to be pleased with you, right? Because we are one. Or if you said, Travis, I really like you, but I don't like Esther, you're not going to get very far with me that day. Right, because we are one. What you might do to one of us impacts the other. Marriage is only a small fleeting picture of what it means to be united to Jesus Christ in the same way you are one with Jesus now. He lives in you by his Holy Spirit and you live in him in a much more dynamic way so that where you go, he goes. Where he is, you are. What happens to him? Resurrection. Life happens to you. What happens to you? Punishment, guilt, death happens to him. There is an exchange, there is a union so that what happens to him happens to you. What happens to you happens to him. That's what Jesus is saying here to Paul. He's saying what you are doing to them is what you are doing to me. There is now no separation between those who are in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. You are still your own. He is still his own being but you are now one in such a way that what you do to someone else who belongs to him is what you do to him. So to love someone who belongs to Jesus is to love Jesus. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. At the end of all things, he's talking about separating the sheep and the goats, those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. And he tells them, he says, come in because I was hungry and you fed me. I was poor and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And people say, when did we ever see you? He says, surely as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So because you are united to him, The way that we treat one another is the way that we treat him. That's the hidden relationship that Acts 9 reveals. To hate other believers is to hate Jesus. To show them love is actually to love him. You are not just loving one another. You are loving Jesus when you love your brother or sister in Christ. You are actually loving him. That is the spiritual reality. That's not what our eyes see. It's not what our ears hear. But Jesus is telling you, Paul didn't see that. We don't see that. But that is what is true fundamentally at the deepest level of reality. The way you treat each other is the way you treat him. So the way forward in treating each other with love, the way to get love right, according to Acts chapter 9, is by the power of Christ's love alive in you, that you treat each other the way that you would treat Jesus if he was here right now. Right, that we treat our family the way we would treat Jesus if he was there right then. Because by the Holy Spirit, he actually is there. You're only doing what is most in line with reality. Your eyes can't see this. Our eyes are deceived in so many ways. We are walking in a darkness we don't know is darkness. Scripture is trying to tell you here is the light. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When my eyes can't see, I can still hear. Scripture is trying to say you can't see what is most deeply true, but hear and follow the voice of the Lord. When you can't see, when you are walking in darkness, hear and follow the voice of the Lord. Because his power comes to light more and more in us when we treat one another like we are treating him. Matthew Kelly in his little book, Holy Moments, has a prologue that tells a story that illustrates what this looks like. When we start to treat other people as if they were Jesus. He tells the story of a monastery, uh, was at first a place of great joy and life and flourishing, where people would come to visit from all around to see what the life of this community that was so full of love looked like. But little by little, he says, the monks that lived there started to close their hearts to God and to each other. In little ways, they became just a little jealous just a little bit rude, a little unkind, just a little more self-centered, and things began to snowball little by little until eventually the monastery was a terrible place where no one loved each other. Everyone was rude and unkind and selfish and self-centered, and people just stopped coming. No one wanted to make a trip to be at that place. And so the leader of the monastery, the abbot, goes on a trip to ask an old friend, For some advice about what he could do to revitalize this place. And his friend tells him the way back to flourishing for this community was to go back to them and tell them just one simple sentence, almost exactly as simple as what Jesus says to Saul in Acts chapter 9. He says, go back and tell them the Messiah is among you. And so the abbot went back called everyone together, brought them into the hall, and said, just the one simple sentence, the Messiah is among you. And it says they were stunned. This is something completely beyond their comprehension, something they'd never imagined to think of. And it says from that moment on, they looked at each other differently. They thought of each other differently. They began to treat each other differently. They began to treat each other with renewed kindness and profound respect. They praised and encouraged each other. Compassion and forgiveness returned to their hearts, and these little things breathed new life into the community. The monks were flourishing. They found flourishing the ability to will the good of each other when by Christ's power they started treating each other like that person was Jesus. Like he was walking around in their community, like they could run into him at any moment. When they found him, they found each other again. When Paul found him, he found God's people again. When you find him, you find community again. And as we walk in darkness and uncertainty in any of the ways that we may be tempted to suddenly walk away from love into hate, treating each other more like an agreement that we can get rather than a relationship and a person made in the image of God to value and respect and cherish even amidst our differences. Once we get that point of finding him, he leads us back to one another. So whenever we walk in darkness in this time, whenever you walk in darkness in your life, whenever you're in relational darkness, if you find Him, you're going to find your way back to each other. You're going to walk in the light. How do we do that maybe a little more concretely as we come to a close here? I want to say first, this is certainly a process and a journey. I've been trying to live this a little bit this week just with my children silently. I haven't told them this. It's really hard. Okay, Let me just say that. Just knowing this is not like, great, you get it. You can move on. That's not how this works. right? This is not a software update for your spiritual iOS and then all of a sudden the bugs are fixed. It does not work like that. This is a slow-going process where we're going to have to learn how to live into this command. This is not an overnight thing. So have patience with yourselves and know that the struggle is part of the process. Recognizing that I don't know how to do it is actually a first step towards doing it. Making mistakes in how to love one each, other, each other is actually learning how to love each other. We're learning what doesn't work so that we learn what does work. These things are part of a process. But some things that can help us, I want to point out just two in closing, are looking for warning signs and looking for Jesus. I want to encourage you to watch out for warning signs in yourselves. We can feel these things before we're conscious of them in so many ways. We can actually be walking in dark and subtle paths to hate without knowing that we're doing that. And so I want to give you a few of some of the the warning signs that we're actually starting to walk down these roads. Henry Nouwen in his book Return of the Prodigal Son points out a few of what the warning signs of, of hate towards brother or sister looks like. It says these are some of the warning signs jealousy anger touchiness sulking pouting self-righteousness resentment and being characterized by complaining again that's jealousy anger touchiness sulking pouting self-righteousness resentment and being characterized by complaining. Where these are present, he says, love tends to be in short supply. And that doesn't mean that just because I recognize that I'm feeling jealous, I recognize that I'm feeling like I'm just complaining all the time, that I'm consumed by anger, that that recognition is automatically going to change things, but it's recognizing almost like if you think about a car has warning lights on the dash, those are warning lights. It's time to go into the mechanic. Right? That doesn't mean that you know how to fix this alone. It means start talking with somebody else about what's going on in your heart. Because you might actually be walking in darkness and you don't know it. And we don't get out of darkness by ourselves. We get out of darkness through community, through God speaking to us in one another. So see where you feel those things. Think about that. Have an awareness of them. Watch out for those warning signs and start talking to someone if you feel those things are coming up in your life more and more. Invite others into that. Let the light come in. And secondly, look for Jesus in each other. I want to encourage you to genuinely try to imagine that you are talking with Jesus when you are talking with someone else. And I don't mean that you need to picture trying to figure out exactly what Jesus looks like uh, when Esther and I were dating in Washington, D.C., my hair was a lot longer and people used to say that I look like Jesus, but Esther is like Jesus. Uh, the last part is still true. Um, but uh, you don't have to picture like what might be some white Anglo Jesus, which isn't, you know, anyway, Mediterranean. Uh, but try and treat one another like you like you think Jesus is actually there, right? Encourage each other, praise each other, be kind and gentle with each other like you would be if you were talking to Jesus, put a note maybe in your, in your Bible, in your bag, in your backpack, in your car, in your house somewhere, reminding you to stick it there on your way out the front door, a little poster that just says, look for Jesus. See if you don't find him more when you do that. Even just one more time in your day when you recognize him in someone else and speak to them in that way, is progress, it's rebuilding, it's moving towards where you want to go. See if you don't find it easier to prize relationship over more mere agreement when you're looking at someone like they're actually Jesus. Think about this when you're disagreeing with someone. What would it look like for me to, to talk to you right now like you are Jesus? Not saying that that means their opinions become the opinions of the Almighty or their words become infallible, but what would it look like for me to treat you like you belong to God, like I'm treating you like you're his spouse, and that if I were to offend you and be unkind to you, I'd be unkind to him. How would that change the way that we disagree? Again, I'm not saying we can't disagree. I'm not saying we need to get to uniformity. Uniformity is not the way forward. Unity is the way forward, and that requires differences. So how in our differences? Do we love one another? We do that through the power of Jesus Christ calling us to, being made more aware of, enabling us to love one another. Let's pray. I want to leave you a little time as we do to to talk to God about some of these things. Maybe thank Him for the way that, that He loves you. That He actually gives you the power in a new and dynamic way to do this ancient thing that it's beyond any of us by our own strength. Maybe just confess the ways that that you have um, subtly hated instead of loved. You've looked for something more from people than just their good. Or ask God to just help us, to help us really follow the light when we can't see. Let's pray for a few moments. Lord, we need you. We can't do this without you and you know that. So I pray that you would be near us now, that you would be alive in us, that as we prepare to come to communion, that you would enliven our hearts with the sense that you are for us and that you love us and that you really are among us. In your name we pray. Amen.